and Debbie is going to come and read to us God's Word. The first readings from 1 Samuel 15, verses 12 to 23. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honour and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, said Saul. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And the second reading is from Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20. Do you think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets? I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So, uh, in case you're a visitor here this morning, we've been going through Matthew's Gospel. And we've gone through the introduction, we've gone through the Beatitudes, the Blesseds, and then that, the ending of that about salt and light. And now we start the central, the main central bit of Jesus' uh, teaching. And what's been interesting uh, just is that, you know, when we read about the Gospels, we want to go to Jesus, Zacchaeus up the tree, or healing people, and things like that. But if you were reading Matthew's Gospel, and it's being read to you as an early Christian community, you'd have heard about Jesus' birth and the coming of the Magi, these wise men from the east at his birth, and then they've escaped to Egypt. Then you jump 30 years, and you have him being baptized. And then suddenly you have... Matthew saying, this is the kind of things that Jesus teaches. 
and immediately you are hit with the hardness of it, uh, the, the calling of it, about who actually God blesses. And so when we come to these words this morning, uh, we haven't got the lilies of the field yet, or uh, loving your enemies, or God's uh, do not judge, but we come how Jesus immediately turns our thoughts to the scriptures. So let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the reading of your word. And Jesus is telling us here how important our scriptures are to us. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us as we reflect on what Jesus is teaching his church to put it into practice in our lives. Hear our prayer, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. A woman comes home to her husband and says, I have good news and bad news. The good news is the airbags work. The gospel means good news, but Jesus says some hard things, which to other people sound like bad news. Marcion was a Christian who lived in the second century. Uh, so just after the end of our Bibles with Revelation, when we closed what was the, the authoritative scriptures of those first eyewitnesses, Christian community went on and people were writing. And so the second century was a Christian called Marcion. And he started cutting up the bits of scripture that he didn't like. He believed that Jesus was the savior sent by God. He believed that Paul was Jesus' chief apostle. He believed that Jesus taught that God was an all-giving, graceful God. And so he didn't like the God that he read about in the Old Testament. And so he thought that that must be a different God because he was so full of wrath and judgment and vengeance. Therefore, Marcion in the second century rejected, as a follower of Jesus, all of the Old Testament scriptures. And because he believed that only Paul was Jesus' true apostle, he accepted his writings of value but therefore he rejected the writings of James and John and Peter, as well as Revelation, Jude, and Hebrews. And then when it came to Jesus, he made his own gospel out of a combination of 10 sections from Luke's gospel, but he rejected the rest of Luke, as well as all of Matthew, Mark, and John. So according to Marcion, and this is what he was teaching his followers in the second century, this is all that we should it consider to be authoritative scriptures. There wasn't left much left in Marcion's Bible to read. And ever since Marcion, we have been cutting up bits of the Bible we don't like because we want a God that suits us, not the kind of God that is revealed in these scriptures. And therefore we get rid of and we ignore and we interpret away aspects of the God of the Bible that are a bit too much for us to get our head around or don't sit easily with our free world of choices or in our world of therapeutic consumerism. There are some Christian churches that never talk about anything too controversial 
because they want people who come to those churches to feel good about Jesus and come feel good about worship. And so they don't want to come across as judging them in any way. And so they steer away from anything that might be too controversial. But I think we're all a bit like this. Even though we may say, this is the Holy Bible, all these books, this is Holy Scripture, we live our lives out of the bits that we enjoy. And there are certain books of the Bible that we will never turn to because we don't know what to do with them and they don't really speak to our modern situation. Now, in the early church's debate with Marcion, as they were hearing what he was saying and as they were trying to weigh it up, a key passage against Marcion were Jesus' words here in Matthew chapter 5. So what is Jesus saying here about the Scriptures? And how is it relevant to life in the kingdom? Because all Jesus' preaching is about that the kingdom of God has come. And so you've got to keep what Jesus says here about the Scriptures, about what it means to be in the kingdom. So I have three points from these verses, in verses 17, verses 18, and then verses 19 and 20. So verse 17, and Jesus says, Do not think... And this is the start of his central section of the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of Scripture. Now, when he talks about the law and the prophets, it's kind of a shorthand way of of saying everything from Genesis to Malachi, everything that we call our Old Testament those were the Hebrew scriptures. They called that the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish Bible. Everything from Genesis to Malachi. So what is Jesus saying here? He is saying that in his life, in his teachings, in his actions, in his healings, in his ministry, everything about him fulfills, completes what was anticipated in the Old Testament. And so from the moment that Jesus said these words, we as Christians read the Old Testament as texts that point to Jesus. If Jesus says, I fulfill Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way to Malachi, then when we read those texts as Christians, we are looking for how Jesus fulfills what is written there. So we're not just reading stories about morality, about telling truth, or about getting into trouble or are the story of people's lives. We are reading these faith stories, but also as pointers to Jesus. Jesus is declaring, I am the point of the Bible. That scripture finds its completeness, its fulfillment in me. So the book of the Bible may look to us confusing when you don't know jargon terms like justification and righteousness and predestination and election. It may look like a lot of different letters and histories, It may look like a jumble of different things, but Jesus says it's not a jumble, it's not confusing, it's a story with a theme, and it's all about me. So remember the words, every Easter we come to them, on Resurrection Day, Jesus comes on that Resurrection Sunday, and he meets two disciples who are on their road to Emmaus. And they haven't heard yet that Jesus has been risen from the dead. The last they heard, he's been crucified. And so they are despondent. Their hearts are downcast, and Jesus walks with them, and they don't know it's Jesus. 
And then at one point, Jesus says, how foolish you are and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then we read, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to these two disciples what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus, from here, even at the, after his resurrection, he is telling his disciples that everything in the Bible is about me. It points to me. I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. They're about me. Now, commands are easy enough to see how Jesus fulfilled them. But what, let's, for take an example, what about the kosher food laws in Leviticus? We learn that water-dwelling animals that crawl like the lobster are unclean because they don't have fins or scales. Israel followed this commandment, and so if you simply followed the law, you couldn't eat such things. But we do. So are we breaking the commandments of God? How do we as people who believe that this is Holy Bible, Holy Scripture, how do some of us eat lobster or break some of these Old Testament food laws? How do we follow what Jesus says here about him as the fulfillment of Scripture? Well, we begin with this. Purity is now established because of Jesus coming on a new basis. Jesus is now the one who makes people clean. Are these ancient divisions between uh, to, to show that purity was needed in, in the worship of God uh, is now fulfilled in Jesus as the one who, by his coming, will make king, people clean. And so these Old Testament laws anticipate Look forward to the purity that will one day be found in Jesus. And so kosher Jewish food laws can be observed now from a clean heart. If the heart is clean through contact with Jesus, then whatever one eats cannot be made unclean. So you can eat lobster as Christians. Or as Messianic Jews who do not eat lobster, they are eating it, not eating it, because Jesus is their saviour and he ultimately makes them clean. And so you can eat it or not because it's the heart that is of the value, of value because Jesus is now Lord and saviour. And so as we delve into the Old Testament and as you've done, you, we make, see how Jesus anticipates, fulfills what is written here. So what I love about the Jigsaw program for our children is that it's very much geared to how Jesus is the fulfiller of what they're learning in the Old Testament. So for those of you who have children there, Jesus comes out. Isn't that right? Every Sunday, even if it's the Old Testament, because they're asking the question, this is what happened then. How does it look forward to Jesus as, our, as the king who has come, as the fulfiller uh, of God's promise of salvation? Jesus is the fulfiller, fulfiller of all scripture. And then we come to verse 18, for I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now try to think of a word that, that captures what Jesus is saying here. So I've gone with the word supremacy over all scriptures, but I might think of a better one in the future. But Jesus is saying nothing will disappear not the tiniest letter from the Old Testament will disappear from the law and the prophets, from Scripture, until everything has been fulfilled according to the will and purposes of God. A hyphen is a very small 
thing. It's not even one of the greatest punctuation marks. It's certainly not as important as a full stop or even a comma in trying to construct sentences. But a hyphen cost the U.S. taxpayer $18.5 million in 1962. On the 22nd of July, Mariner 1, the Venus-bound rocket, blasted off from Earth, but had to, they had to press the self-destruct button very quickly because it suddenly diverted off its ordained course to Venus. And the reason was somebody had left the hyphen out of the flight computer program. And that one hyphen cost them $18.5 million loss. So it didn't get to Venus. If that's true of Mariner 1, how much more the words of the living God? And that's why Jesus is saying, if, if the whole Testament Scriptures is God's revelation of himself and what he wants, and he's, he's telling us what, what kind of God he is, what holiness is, and what he demands of righteousness in our lives and how we must come by faith, then Jesus says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, until it's his way of saying, until everything comes to its completion, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished because Scripture is supreme in its revelation of God. If you say, I follow Jesus, but I can't buy this idea that everything in the Bible has authority over me or has relevance for my life, you have a major spiritual problem. If you read the Bible... You never, if you read the Gospels, you never find Jesus saying in one or two places, now let me tell you my doctrine of Scripture. Instead, his view of Scripture is found in almost every page of the Gospels. So even when you go to the, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he quotes Scripture. Now when you are in the utmost pain, you do not reflect. All you do is act instinctively. And so if you're really annoyed and you're really in pain, some things come out that you might later regret. Here is Jesus in the agony of his cross, and so he is reacting, reacting instinctively. And what does he do? He quotes Psalm 22 and Isaiah 50. Because all through Jesus' life, he has been quoting his life in relation to Scripture. Every joy, every conflict, every danger, every temptation, as we did, he quotes the Word of God. Think about the story, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 19. Both die. The rich man goes to hell. The beggar called Lazarus goes to heaven. And down in hell, the rich man sees Father Abraham in heaven with Lazarus by, by his side. And in Jesus' story, the rich man says, Father Abraham, I have no idea that hell would be this bad. My five brothers are still living in sin and wickedness. Send that beggar Lazarus to my father's house to warn them to change their ways so they'll not end up here. And what is Jesus shows his view of scripture as he tells this story because he has Abraham reply, they have had Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to him. The rich man says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they'll repent. And Abraham says, if they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, 
they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. If they'll not listen to the word of God, they'll not listen to one who comes back from the dead. Jesus believed the scriptures had tremendous power because a person coming back from the dead will not have as much impact on a person's spiritual health and life as the word of God. So if you hope to follow Jesus and yet you reject or you debate what he believes about the Bible, you've a major spiritual problem. You are setting yourself up like Marcion to decide which bits of the Bible work for me and which ones don't. This is Jesus' view of the scripture. It's not mine. And the implication from Jesus is that you cannot know him and obey him unless you obey his doctrine of scripture. So here in the Sermon on the Mount, where does Jesus begin? Not with loving your enemies or doing good or even prayer. He begins with what scripture is. Because if you don't get your doctrine of scripture right, then how are you going to know the God that you are to follow? What we need is a personal relationship with God. But the only way we can know what God wants of us is through his words that have been given to us in Scripture. And the only way to to hear him speaking is to come under the authority of his word. And if we reject the Bible, all of it, as the word of God, there's no way to hear him speak because it's intrinsic to what it means to be a Christian. Not... The smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will but disappear because everything in Scripture is supreme because it's all pointing to the God that has loved us in Jesus. Then you come to verse 19. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. How do we... Um, thought about this verse because it's all about the kingdom of heaven. Everything Jesus is teaching is about the kingdom of heaven. It talks about two groups of people, the least and the great. And there's a debate, are these people who get into heaven who are called the least? Or is it just a way of saying that these are people who actually end up in hell? Because Jesus will tell a later parable about somebody who gets into the wedding banquet with the wrong clothes and they're chucked out where there's a place of gnashing of teeth. So Jesus may mean hell by the least and heaven by the great. Both groups teach. We're always teaching by our lives. The one who breaks God's commandments is teaching by their breaking that it's okay to break it. And so they're teaching others to break it. And they'll be called least where the one who practices and teaches will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So we are all teaching people about the kingdom by the way that we live our lives. But if you keep scripture light in your life and you take the bits like Martian that you like and the other bits that you don't like, you're teaching, by your breaking of it, you're teaching others how to break it. Jesus says such people will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So I've called this final point, Jesus, and the practicing of all scripture. What does Jesus mean by these commandments? Because if you break it, 
you're leashed and if you keep it, you're great. What happens if you break it in the morning and you keep it later in the day? Do you average out in the middle? Or what happens if you... If one breaks it today and someone else breaks it tomorrow, which of you gets to be least in the kingdom of heaven? It wasn't intended as a game in which you calculate it mathematically. It's a graphic way of reinforcing the point that Jesus is making of how important even the least commandment might be in Scripture. Because if it's God's commandments, who are you to say that one little one doesn't really matter. So I got Debbie to read First Samuel 15, and I was talking to Ruth during the week, and she came across this uh, through a sermon of, of Tim Keller, and it really, his points and what he was brought our attention to really helped make this point here. God says to Saul, go to the Amalekites and wipe them out, but do not take anything for plunder. Because what you are doing to the Amalekites is an act of justice. It's not to be an act of imperialism. You see, when people go to war, they say it's about truth and justice, but actually most countries go to war because of they're greedy, they want to get richer, and because of power. So go after these wicked people. The, the Amalekites were a marauding, violent uh, they, they committed terrible atrocities. They're not a nice group of people. They are, they are a horrible group of people. And God says, I've had enough of their injustices. I want you to pronounce, but go to war against them and pronounce my justice by wiping them out. But don't take anything. Take no plunder. Take no livestock. Do not profit one penny from this war because it's an act of justice. It's not an act of imperialism. So Saul defeats them and God helps him in battle. But then what does Saul do? He captures and saves the life of Agag the king and he brings home the majority of the best of the livestock, which is the best of their wealth. Of their wealth. And Saul says, I have done what God commanded me. I have defeated them. I've killed everybody, oh, but I didn't kill the king. And I've slaughtered everything but I've kept the best of the sheep. Lord, you will be delighted with what I have done for you today. But he has actually done zero of what God had asked of him because he has now become like the Amalekites. He has done the very thing that God had said he was punishing the Amalekites for because they have been using other countries for their own profit. And by keeping Agag and by keeping the sheep he is not, he's kept them because he wants to use them for profit. Why did, why did he keep the king? Because you can ransom the king for a lot of money. Why did he keep the sheep? Because he can sell them. So instead of defeating the Amalekites in the name of truth and justice, he has made Israel just to be like the plundering Amalekites. And so when Samuel comes to him, Saul runs out to him and says, Samuel, my father, what a day. The Lord is with us. The Lord has blessed us. He's given us victory. The first time we have been victorious over another country. Oh, what a day this is going to be. Let's have a great celebration and worship service. He th thinks he has done good, even when he has broken something that God commanded. He is so self-deceived. And then Samuel says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much 
as in obeying the voice of the Lord. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. The voice of God must be practiced in our lives. And that is why Jesus goes on to say, I tell you in verse 20, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees were the good people. They knew God's word like the back of their hands. They were so devoted to keeping God's commandments. So when Jesus says to these people on that mountain, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you'll not get into heaven. You can imagine the shock of the people when they heard this. Because if the Pharisees were righteous, then their lives would look like the kingdom of heaven on earth. They would be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. But their lives do not look like the presence of the king and his kingdom on earth. Therefore, they are not righteous enough. And that is why they are not in the kingdom. To be in the kingdom means practicing the life of the kingdom in your life and in your community. And that's why Jesus will go on to teach us in the light of Scripture what does Scripture tell us about love, loving our enemies, and about marriage relationships, and about taking oaths, and about prayer. But all these other things, and the lilies of the field, and how God cares for the birds of the air, and does not care much more of you, or you have little faith. All those other things which are wonderful, we can take because we believe God's word is supreme, it's fulfilled in Jesus, and we're seeking to practice it in our lives. The Sermon in the Mount is about the presence of God as King in our lives. Christianity is about nothing if it's not about change. If you don't see change in your life because of the presence of the King, according to Jesus, you're not in the kingdom because your righteousness must surpass, surpass that of the Pharisees. And so we've got to ask the question, what does righteousness look like because God, Jesus is our king and we are in the kingdom? And so in the light of this, how do you respond to this? I Hopefully as we journey on in Matthew and sermons and themes through the year, we, we show how Jesus fulfills all of Scripture. He is the answer to all our needs. And that Scripture is supreme. You may not understand some of the things that you read in it. But it's how God speaks and how God reveals himself and his love to us. But we just can't leave it there. We must practice it as well. And so when the, the two builders at the end, the man who built his house on the rock, is the man who heard Jesus' words, but that's the same as the one who built his house in the sand. Both heard Jesus' words, but the one who built his house on the rock put it into practice. And so Jesus' conclusion shows the importance earlier here. We must put it into practice. So what are we saying? We want to, as people's people, say, Lord, go home and get your Bibles. Lord, I thank you that I have Holy Scripture that is enough for me to know everything that I need to know to live in honor of you. And Jesus said he would send the Holy Spirit to lead us into all the truth. And so every time you open the Bible, you're asking the Holy Spirit to lead me into all the truth about Jesus. May it lead me to Jesus. You're asking, may I not dismiss any of it? 
Just because I don't like it or because it, 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 it seems hard for, for my heart in following you. May, Lord, what does this mean for me? How do I put it into practice? Enable me to practice it. May I not just hear it. Because if I leave it there, I'm building my life on sand. But help me to put it into practice so my life will be built on the rock of the revelation of who you are as revealed in Jesus.